Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and director of stewardship innovation for UPMC and ID Connect. The Breakpoints team gets a lot of requests for content related to gram-negative infections. This would include anything from deep diving into mechanisms of resistance, giving pathogen-directed information, and talking about the role of recently developed antibiotics in therapy, particularly for multidrug resistant pathogens. So we believe in giving our audience what they want. And so we launched a gram negative series in October of 2020, and we plan to release content related to this topic throughout the coming year. So if you missed the first two episodes in our new series, be sure to check out the episodes titled A Nefarious Orchestra, Gram Negative Resistance Mechanisms Part 1 and 2. These episodes feature doctors Robert Bonomo and Ryan Shields, and they go into how porn channel mutations, efflux pumps, penicillin binding protein modifications, and beta-lactamase enzymes work in concert to create the resistant phenotypes we sometimes see in our patients. And now, today, in the next installment of our series, we are so lucky to have two of the authors of the recent IDSA guidance documents on treatment of various gram-negative pathogens. They're here to help us break down the recommendations, shine light on any of the remaining controversies as they worked on writing these documents, and more. So without further ado, I want to first welcome Dr. Pranita Tama to the Breakpoints family. Pranita is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases and the Director of the Pediatric Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on improving our understanding of the mechanisms of gram-negative bacterial resistance, improving available diagnostics to identify gram-negative resistant pathogens, and optimizing therapeutic choices for infections caused by drug-resistant gram-negative organisms. She currently has research funding from the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, and AHRQ to investigate these areas. She's also a longtime fan of the podcast and an incredibly fun and wonderful person to be around. And I also recently discovered that she was the New York City High School Debate Champion in 1997. So with all of that, it's an absolute honor to journey through the great unknown of acinetobacter treatments and everything else we're going to discuss and maybe even debate today. So Pranita, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you so much, Erin. I'm really excited to be here with two of my favorite people, and I uh, very much appreciate you throwing in that random fact about what a nerd I was in high school. It's one of my favorite emails I've received in the last 10 days or so when you told me that, so it, it went straight into the pod. That's, that's excellent. Up next, we have Dr. Sam Aiken, who is also making his Breakpoints debut. Sam is a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at the University of Michigan, and he's an adjunct clinical professor of pharmacy at Michigan's College of Pharmacy. Sam completed his PGY-1 residency at Yale New Haven Hospital, and then an ID fellowship at the University of Houston, which, by the way, we do have a great episode last month that deep-dived into what exactly ID fellowships are, so if you're interested more about Sam's journey and the journey of some others, you can check that out. Sam previously served as an ID pharmacist at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he became one of the world's leading experts in immunocompromised infectious diseases. I think Sam has seen more kinds of resistant pathogens than we can think of in complex hosts, and he's made a career of leveraging pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic knowledge and this interplay of antibiotic bug host dynamics in order to optimize patient care. 
He's also sometimes affectionately referred to as Steno Sam, and he gives 10 out of 10 taco recommendations, can confirm. Sam, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've always wanted to say this, but I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller, so this is very exciting. Uh, <laughs> I do have to also say that my taco recommendations have sadly taken a hit since I moved to Michigan. They're just not as good here as they were in Texas, but the cheese curd opportunities are much better up here. So I'm looking forward to this today. New, new wonderful opportunities everywhere. Uh, I come to you from pierogi land, so, you know. Um, okay, well, you guys, I am very excited for our discussion today. But first, on behalf of all of our listeners and the infectious diseases community, I do want to thank you guys and your co-authors, which include Dr. Amy Mathers, Neil Clancy, Robert Bonomo, and David Van Dyne, for all of your hard work and dedication to these documents. It is as you know, and why you wrote them, it is so critically important that we have these kinds of references in clinical practice in order to advocate for the appropriate use of these novel antimicrobial agents that come out and adopt best practices earlier in all of our care settings. So I can only imagine what a lift this was to sort through really heterogeneous data and come up with these recommendations. So I wanna start there, the process in general. Can you tell us how this started where did the concept of guidance documents originate from as opposed to a traditional guideline? And then, you know, how did you guys get your author group together and really just walk us through where you started tackling this hugely important project for our community? Um, yeah, no, thank you, Aaron. I, I think it, it, well, it definitely was a very interesting process. And I, I'd like to start off on behalf of all of us to thank IDSA for having the foresight to propose the concept of guidance documents for the treatment of gram-negative resistant pathogens. Um, IDSA understood the need for guidance on this topic, but they also understood that this topic may not lend itself to the traditional approach for developing guidelines. As we know, new AMR data are being generated almost weekly, but for many management questions, there just simply aren't rigorous data to inform recommendations beyond mostly industry-sponsored clinical trials where, frankly, sometimes the comparator arm in these trials are often not reflective of some of the treatment dilemmas we actually face in, in the real world. And as you know, you know, as much as we appreciate all the work that goes into the IDSA guidelines, and while they're informative, they require this, these systematic reviews of the literature to develop rigorous grade criteria. The amount of work involved, involved necessitates large panels, so even something as simple as arranging a meeting can take weeks. There's often prolonged timelines involved, so by the time they're published, some of the recommendations are unfortunately already outdated. So the concept of guidance documents was born because of some of the frustrations that, again, we appreciate the efforts, but, but, but we do see some of those issues with traditional guidelines. Um, and the thought that IDSA had was that guidance documents, and the AMR guidance is the first one, would be developed by a small team of experts who would develop and address questions about treatment based on review of the literature, clinical experience, and expert opinion. And the real goal was to give the average clinician, you know, whether or not they're ID trained, a general framework for approaching complex drug-resistant infections. And of, of course, we understand every patient's different, so deviations will be necessary. And we try very hard not to be overly prescriptive so for particular organisms like, like steno or acinetobacter, we use terms like suggested approach um, rather than recommendations. And then just briefly in terms of how this group got together, 
Neil Clancy and I were very fortunate to be asked by IDSA if we'd be willing to co-chair the AMR treatment guidance when we were given the opportunity to select four other panel members. Um, on a side note, Neil, Neil was a phenomenal partner and I really enjoyed getting to know him during the process with, with all his quirks, which I, which I very much love. And I think that the biggest conflict Neil and I had was that he's a two-spacer and I, I prefer single spaces after periods. But other than that, um, we pretty much saw eye to eye on, on, on many things or most things. And we decided that we wanted early on the guidance to be, I think the proposal was actually to be drug focused. Um, we changed it to pathogen focused because, you know, the average clinician's not walking around saying, hey, I wonder who I should use Mirapenem Vapor Bactam on today, but rather, yikes, this patient has a carbapenem resistant Enterobacter growing in the BAL fluid, like what is the tr best treatment option? So we wanted to select people passionate about AMR with clinical and research experience who, who are actively practicing all at different institutions, all six members, want, we wanted them at different institutions, different parts of the country to have different perspectives um, and regional differences in, in resistance. And then obviously we wanted people not shy about voicing their opinions, people who are doers and overall fun, great people, hence the decision um, to include Sam. And the in initial vision actually proposed to us was six physicians, but Neil and I were really adamant about having pharmacy involvement. Truthfully, if it was up to us, we would have had the panel be half physicians and half pharmacists, but we were fortunate to have at least one pharmacist. And for people like you, Aaron, and several other really um, amazing pharmacists around the country, who took the time to critically review draft versions of these documents and really improve the quality of them. So that was a long answer, but I'll, I'll no. hand it to Sam. I'm sure there's a lot more to say. No, thank you so much. I do want to go on record by saying one spacing is correct. Uh, I work with Neil, so I'm sure he'll show up or tweet about me. That's fine. One spacing is the way to go. And then just on thank behalf you. of all of SIDP and everyone, thank you. We really appreciate being included. And I, I mean, do think pharmacist insight is really valuable, particularly as it relates to dosing controversies, which I know Sam is going to provide a lot of commentary on later in the podcast as we get into the bugs. But Sam, any other things you want to add about how this author group came together and the process of writing these guidance documents? Yeah, so I wasn't involved in the selection of the author group. I was just the, the beneficiary of it. So I do really want to thank Pranita and Neil for advocating so strongly for pharmacists and particularly you know, you know, choosing me. I was very honored and, and taken aback by the fact that I would even get that phone call. I still remember where I was when I got the phone call uh, from uh, Cindy Sears to be on this panel. Uh, I was very excited uh, and it was right before COVID started. So it was a very uh, interesting time in my life. I was about to take a trip to Antarctica too. So I remember all those details, uh, but I don't, uh, you know, I wasn't involved in putting the group together, but I agree. It's just been a fantastic group to work with. And both the people on the panel and then people like yourself and, and others uh, who have reviewed all of the guidance documents to make sure that everything that we're saying is uh, very reasonable and helpful to people. Uh, and I will say in advance that I take full responsibility, be it good or bad, for the dosing recommendations, which have been proven to be somewhat controversial. So, And that's I, I the real reason I wanted a pharmacist, because Neil and I were terrified at the idea of defending dosing on podcasts without a pharmacist to blame. So. 
<laughs> oh, that's why we're all here to talk about it today. No, you guys are amazing. I was honored to be asked just to review it. So I can't even imagine the process of being a part of the author group. Uh, let's run down for our audience some quick high-level things about these documents, what we can expect moving forward. So first and foremost, correct me if I'm wrong, these are US-centric recommendations. So while there are definitely things that are globally applicable for the most part, this is US-focused based on drug availability, based on epidemiology in the United States, correct? Correct. Okay, and then how often should we expect these documents to be updated? Yeah, so I think, you know, the initial plan, uh, which maybe it turns out to be a little bit overzealous, was to try to update these every six months or so uh, with current recommendations. Uh, so as Pranita mentioned, the data is coming out basically as we can write these things. And even in the span of, say, the Merino trial being published, updates to the Merino trial, for example, there have been data that have completely sort of turned our recommendations on its head as we're writing these things. So it's uh, the initial plan was every six months. We'd, we'd always planned on doing the six organisms that we've covered now uh, with having about a year between those two documents. So we do plan on reevaluating recommendations as they sort of come in in real time with the goal of sort of a biannual update. If it needs less frequently than that, that's great, less work for us. Uh, but I doubt that's going to be the case in such a sort of dynamic changing environment. Yeah, especially while we're all updating our COVID guidelines every four seconds. So we completely <laughs> we completely appreciate that. Um, other key high level things about these documents before we dive into the six pathogens that you cover is that these are pathogen focused when you have the drug and the susceptibility pattern in front of you. And so to readers and listeners, there's a beautiful section written on empiric therapy and how to think about empiric therapy for your patients. I think it's, we all often summarize, try to summarize for our learners and for others outside of ID and how do you go about selecting empiric therapy? I personally love what the authors wrote in both guidance documents. So Highly recommend reading that section, but note that these guidelines are not focused on empiric therapy. And then they also don't deep dive into durations, but there is another beautiful section on duration of therapy. My favorite line in there is that you guys write that longer courses of therapy are not necessarily appropriate compared to more susceptible phenotypes, which is the first time that's been written down for us to cite and reference. And I think a lot of us know that to be true and practice that way, but I think that's a hugely important statement, even if it is expert opinion. And so love that section. I just wanted to call that out as well. But the rest of the documents and the rest of the podcast will focus on the recommendations when you know the bug and you know your susceptibility pattern. So with no further ado, let's jump in. And so we are talking today about two these are two guidance documents. I think we've laid that out. The first one came out in September of 2020 and it reviews ESBLs, CRE, and Pseudomonas. And then the second guidance document just came out in September of 2021, and it walks through AMP-C, carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter, and steno. And so we will go in that order for the podcast today. So when we talk about each bug, we want to cover what the recommendations are, kind of a high-level summary. And then what we really want to hear is any things that the panel really debated or that came up as a controversy and any remaining controversies. We know there's still a lot of unanswered questions in this space. Um, and then we'll, we'll walk through the, the, the pathogens that way. So let's start with ESBLs or extended spectrum beta lactamases. Pranita, do you want to review the recommendations here and, and how you guys got started? Sure. Um, so for extended spectrum beta lactamases, and I will um, just note that later this month, we will be, you will be seeing updated versions of 
the guidance for ESBL, CRE, and the difficult to treat pseudomonas. You know, as, as I was telling Aaron earlier, the original ask was to make these very focused on the average clinician who's not very familiar with resistance. But after the first version, we just realized that the biggest, um, the, the largest audience for these were really these sophisticated ID pharmacists who just asked all the questions we were hoping nobody would ask us. So we realized we really needed to step up our game with the updates. So I'm very excited about the, the um, updated sections for these three pathogens, because I do think they're a lot more detailed. There's a lot more rationale included. And we go into some things like resistance mechanisms and, and, and how to pick after a patient's received one course of one of these drugs and so forth, which, which hopefully will, will be informative. And I'll just um, quickly just mention that we love receiving feedback, good or bad. So definitely please feel free to keep bringing up issues. Um, Sam is like manning Twitter and responding in real time, it seems. So we definitely appreciate the feedback. So for ESBLs, you know, I think for the sake of time, I'll probably just sort of say the biggest kind of guidance, I guess, or recommendation for management is we sort of break it down into treating urinary infections, treating bloodstream, or other, quote, invasive infections, so anything beyond uncomplicated cystitis. Maybe I'll defer to Sam a little bit on the controversies related to Pipercil and Tazobactam versus carbapenems, because that's always this sort of long-standing controversy. Um, there was a lot of Twitter comments about, well, now that the Marino trial was sort of, um, the data was reanalyzed using reference broth microdilution, how does that change our recommendations? So we'll definitely discuss that. But two of the can't other- can see me shaking my head no, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was like, for those listening, Sam is shaking his head no. Can't wait to hear more about that. Violently shaking his head. Um, but, to, but two of the brief issues I wanted to address just because we did get a lot of questions about them. And, you know, we've been trying not to respond to letters of the editor and everything in real time, just because it's almost easier to put it all on the updated version. Um, but one has to do with identifying ESBLs. Um, we, of course, don't have a great approach to identifying ESBL. So I'll talk through our rationale for selecting the suggestions we included. Um, and the second, we received a fair amount of feedback from several people, uh, most notably some very animated comments from Jim Lewis about why we didn't address the cefamycins for the treatment of ESBL producing infections. So in the updated guidance that again will be out later this month, we do include a section about the cefamycins. So but just very briefly regarding the first issue, I think everyone you know, knows that ESBL testing has implications that opens these huge cans of worms. Routine ESBL testing is not performed by most clinical micro labs in the United States. And this is in accordance with general guidance provided by the Clinical Laboratory and Standards Institute. And therefore, clinicians are often left guessing if an organism is ESBL producing or not. We elected to state that non-susceptibility to ceftriaxone, um, so more specifically for E. coli, Klebnumo, Klebocytoka, or Proteus mirabilis with ceftriaxone MICs of two or higher. So for these organisms in this resistance profile, um, it should heighten someone's awareness that the organism is potentially ESBL producing. And we, of course, realize that non-susceptibility to ceftriaxone is an imperfect proxy for ESBL production, as grand negatives may be not susceptible to ceftriaxone for a variety of reasons other than ESBL production. So while E. coli, Club Proteus producing ESBLs 
have ceftriaxone and MICs of two or higher almost always. Not all of these organisms with MICs of two or higher are actually ESBL producers, and we, we certainly recognize that. A portion of these might be have plasmid-mediated AMC genes or even no identifiable beta-lactamase gene. And this is important um, for treatment implications because carbapenem therapy is likely not necessary for these situations. And additionally, even though we pretend, we like to pretend that ESBL production is limited to E. coli Clevin proteus, we know that, that virtually any enterobacterialis and even non-fermenters can produce ESBLs although the prevalence of ESBL production is the highest with, with E. coli and Klebsiella. So, you know, I, I realized that, um, you know, and even within the group, we had a little bit of back and forth on what criteria to use for an ESBL, but to be as pragmatic as possible, because the IDSA guidance is intended for real world use, with all the constraints that we have with current diagnostics, we decided to use somewhat of an 80-20 rule in picking a ceftriaxone threshold that, that picks up most ESBLs and probably closer to all ESBLs, and in most common pathogens that are producing ESBLs. But before I, I move on to the second question about cefamycins, I don't know if Sam or Aaron has anything to add, or if Sam, you wanna delve into one of the other issues? I do want to emphasize an important point you made, Pernita, just as a recap and context for listeners in that, Currently, the CLSI says you, if you report the new breakpoints for ceftriaxone as a less than or equal to one, that you can call it an ESBL if it's greater than that, but it's only for CLEB, CLS species, non-erogenes, E. coli, and Proteus mirabilis. So your guidance is aligned with that guidance, which I think is helpful, but we know that it's imperfect and you actually have, uh, you and Jim Lewis, Amy Mathers, um, and Romney Humphreys have a really nice pro-con debate written about ESBL phenotypic testing and JACAMR that just came out a couple months ago. So listeners, I would encourage you to check out those publications. We can put the citations and the show notes for this episode as well. Um, that explains everything Dr. Tama just went through, I think really nicely, um, but it is a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but important background in that these are great recommendations, but there still are remaining controversies and still a ways to go in terms of optimally presenting the phenotype and the genotype of the patient. And how does that um, impact your treatment decision? So I think you guys did a really good job with that in an, in an imperfect space. So with that being said, Sam, do you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, Piptazo versus carbapenems for ESBLs? Because this continues to be a debate even after randomized clinical trials have demonstrated answers. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about the Merino trial, the Merino trial broth microdilution deep dive, and why your recommendations are staying the way they are? Yeah. So without going through the entire history of Piptazo treatment for ESBLs, just sort of summarizing out there is that tazobactam in and of itself is a great inhibitor of most ESBL genes out there. It is, is an exquisitely good inhibitor of CTXM15, whereas piperacillin is very labile to this. But the idea is that you combine an inhibitor with uh, beta-lactam and that you should get an effective drug. And in vitro, it turns out that piptazo is really very active against a large amount of these ESBL type organisms. And you know, there was a back and forth for a pretty long period of time as to whether or not Piptazo was an effective option for uh, treatment of ESBL bacteremias. Pernita, Pernita published a very nice paper saying that it was not. Uh, and then there were a number of papers from folks in Spain saying that it was just fine. 
Now, uh, at the time, sort of that controversy came out in terms, really shook out in terms of how the statistical analysis was done. People accused Pernita of using perhaps too fancy statistics uh, to get the answer that she wanted. And then some of the data from uh, Spain was really sort of differences in the types of ESBLs that you might see. So whether it's CTXM, which, which specific type of CTXM, was it a lot of shivs? And then a lot of data basically on whether it was a urinary source or a biliary source or high inoculum infections and all these sorts of things. So a lot of deep diving into this. Fortunately, we had the Merino group that came along led by David Patterson, um, which is just an absolutely fantastic uh, study that randomized patients with or sorry third-generation cephalosporin-resistant E. coli or Klebsiella to receive piperacillin, tazobactam, or mirapenem as definitive therapy uh, for bloodstream infections. And uh, by statistical oddities, it was shown that piptaza was not non-inferior, which translating normal people language means that it was inferior to mirapenem. So um, really the, the conclusion from Marino as it was published uh, as a randomized controlled trial and it didn't really didn't matter any which way you wanted to slice it, at least in the primary publication set, was that piptazel was just a worse drug than mirapenem for patients with E. coli or Klebsiella bloodstream infections that were third generation cephalosporin resistant. And you know there, there are ways you can look at it and argue against that. You can argue with the trial design, how sick the patients were or whatever, but the fundamental conclusion for Marino was that piptazel was just not as good as mirapenem. Subsequently, the authors published a reanalysis of the data where they took all of the isolates to a central location and they did broth microdilution testing for Piptazo again. The idea being that maybe the local labs that were assigned at random or that were doing the testing for randomization might not have had uh, the greatest uh, ability to discern elevated Piptazo MICs. And in fact, that based on their reanalysis where they did formal broth microdilution instead of these standard clinical laboratory tests, they found that actually quite a number of isolates had their piptazo susceptibilities changed and that they were falsely called susceptible in the local labs. And when they reanalyzed the Merino data and they only looked at the ones that were considered resistant by the central lab, um, or they looked at or excluded rather the resistant isolates from the central lab, that difference went away. In other words, piptazo is just fine if you use it only for susceptible isolates. Um, that was the long and short of that. Now, that is a post hoc analysis. It's very interesting. Uh, but I, when you have a randomized control trial, sort of inferential logic would say that if your prior hypothesis is that one drug doesn't work as well as another, and the randomized trial shows that any post hoc explanations trying to explain why the findings are different than what you might have expected, you have to do another subsequent trial to find that or a specifically designed study to, to find that. Others might disagree, but I think fundamentally the main conclusion still from Marino holds and that this post hoc analysis, while interesting and hypothesis generating, doesn't necessarily lead us to change results. And there's a lot of issues associated with that because we most clinical labs don't have access to fancy broth microdilution techniques. We have rapid di or not rapid diagnostics, but the standard quick diagnostics like Vitec or Phoenix or even the Accelerate platform, which are going to provide necessarily different answers than broth microdilution. So we don't all have the benefit of practicing with a confirmed central laboratory in front of us. So really, is it? Well, it might be relevant that the that the central lab is providing different results. What we really have is the clinical micro lab, and we have to act on the results we have in front of us, not the results that we might have had we sent this to an outside laboratory. The other yeah. explanation for this is that 
there's a really interesting thing, uh, and this was a line of work that I was that I've been involved doing some research in as well, is that a lot of these ESBL isolates carry an OXA1 gene. OXA1 is basically what was for years considered to be an absolutely nothing beta lactamase. Nobody cared about it. It didn't really hydrolyze anything. It just kind of sat there. But it turns out that under selective pressure that these OXA1 genes, as well as other genes, including CTXM, they duplicate themselves pretty nastily in, in E. coli and Klebsiella. So you might go from having one copy of a gene to 10 copies to 20 to 100. And what happens is that even if you have this little beta-lactamase that nobody cares about that does a really terrible job of hydrolyzing piperacillin but isn't inhibited by tazobactam at all, all of a sudden, if you go to 100 of those beta-lactamases that you don't really care about, that hydrolyze piperacillin a little bit, but aren't inhibited by tazobactam, you run into real problems with piptazo. So it turns out that a lot of the isolates, uh, a lot of this explanation, or, or the reason why Merino, piptazo failed in Merino could also be explained by co-presence of OXA1. And what I believe will likely shake out is that these genes were amplified in vivo. Um, so you are gonna necessarily find differences in, in testing technique there. So I don't think the story is completely written as to whether this is an MIC issue, as to whether it's a source of infection issue, which some still argue, or whether it is an issue of these narrow spectra beta-lactamases amplifying themselves. I personally think it's the third one, but there's a lot of clinical controversies out there as to why piptazo, despite in vitro susceptibility and a good mechanistic rationale for why it would work, why it doesn't. However, as a panel, we all universally agreed that the Clinical or observational literature was pretty, was pretty split in terms of whether you could or could not use Piptazo, but we had a definitive randomized trial that was done really well that showed that Piptazo was not as good as uh, Mirapenem. And we didn't like the necessarily like the post hoc explanations for why that might be. We thought they were interesting. We felt we discussed them extensively. We felt that that was a great basis for future endeavors. But right now, the risk benefit of just giving Mirapenem for confirmed ESBL producing or third generation cephalosporin resistant E. coli bloodstream infections was there. We have no real strong rationale to prefer piptazo over mirapenem. And there, we can maybe get into the stewardship considerations there, but we didn't think those potential stewardship considerations of just avoiding a carbapenem necessarily justified avoiding a carbapenem in this case. Yeah, so, I think, thanks, Sam. That was phenomenal. And I, so I think to summarize that and close it out, a lot of important points. And just to say, you know, we, we spend a lot of time arguing for piptazo over mirapenem. I think we need to ask ourselves really deeply, is there really much of a difference between those two agents in terms of spectrum and in terms of, you know, ecological harm to the patient, et cetera, and who knows there. I think we've heard since the Merino extra data came out that, well, if it's not OXA1 harboring, piptazo would still be okay. That's not practical in real time. And that's what I really like about this guidance is that it's so practical. I have no earthly idea if my isolate harbors an OXA1. If I'm lucky enough to work at a center that has rapid diagnostics, I might know if it has a CTXM, but there are other ESBLs that rapid diagnostic tests do not detect for all the TEMs and shifts. Um, and so there's just a lot that goes in here. And, and at the end of the day, we're kind of talking ourselves in circles and ultimately do agree with your recommendations there. And thank you so much for that beautiful explanation. I want to hit a few two more highlights in the ESBL section, and then we can move on to CRE. So first, tetracyclines and UTIs, don't do it. Anything else to say about that? I think that's a pretty accurate then to sort of expand on that just a little bit. No, uh, that's good enough. Doxycycline <laughs> does get into the urine just a little bit. Uh, there's really not much literature supporting it. 
Um, cystitis, well, we can maybe talk about this for phosphomycin, but cystitis is just a difficult beast to study in general, um, especially retrospectively. Right. So Absolutely. we weren't convinced by that literature. And we do, for the new doxy question, we do kind of, all right, it's not a separate question, but we have a paragraph on there. The RCTs people reference were using doxy to treat pseudomonas, which like they're from the I think 60s or 70s. Like uh, th there's so much about that data that's a little concerning that were these real infections, like it's not even active against this organism. So for many of the reasons outlined in the guidance, including the amount of excretion and uh, organisms studied and how the epidemiology has changed, as you summarized very nicely, Erin, <laughs> we do recommend against it. Yeah. I mean, we always joke that if you want to get a new antibiotic approved, do a UTI study, but that is not in fact the case for the tetracycline family. And I love tetracyclines, but they're not excellent cystitis drugs. Other That's while we're graveyard oh. of tetracycline startup companies. <laughs> I know. RIP. So while we're in the cystitis fam and you mentioned phosphomycin, so other key recs here, I love in your table, you have phosphomycin is for E. coli only. Sam, can you briefly tell us why that is the case? Yes, I sure can. So the major reason for it, getting into it from a mechanistic perspective, is that most organisms, gram-negative organisms that aren't E. coli, carry a FOS gene. And FOS is a, FOS a is the most common. This is intrinsic to Klebsiella, for example, Pseudomonas, Enterobacter. These are genes that hydrolyze phosphomycin and render it inactive. So from a mechanistic perspective, almost everything from the gram-negative world that isn't E. coli has an intrinsic resistance mechanism to phosphomycin. The clinical literature is completely unconvincing that they're basically just a bunch of case series. Uh, so it's really hard to identify those. But certainly the PKPD models, uh, they really show that Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, whatever, they all regrow. Um, regardless how, of what oral equivalent dosing for phosphomycin you give them, whereas E. coli does not. So based on the PKPD literature, as well as the fact that most gram-negatives have intrinsic resistance genes to phosphomycin, as well as where the bulk of the clinical literature sits, we felt comfortable recommending it only for E. coli. Now that said, and this is true for doxycycline too, cystitis gets better on its own in a majority of cases. So there you will find a lot of successful treatments um, with phosphomycin or inactive drugs for patients with cystitis and they get better. And that's not necessarily saying that the wrong thing was done clinically if that was given or that we're completely bonkers and out of our mind for recommending against it. It's just that this is a disease that often spontaneously resolves and we don't necessarily know why. Um, the other thing more broadly is, is the tough thing in creating an infectious diseases guidance or guideline is that you can give the wrong antibiotic to most patients and they will do just fine even if they have life-threatening infections. I'm not by any means suggesting doing that, but even if the best example of this is if you look at the daptomycin for CAP studies is the patients who were randomized to the daptomycin arm weren't dropping dead left and right. So they really you know, it, it's really hard to do good studies of ID and because most patients fortunately tend to do pretty well, even if you completely muck up their treatment. Um, so I think that's an important thing to note and uh, worth taking into account when we, when you look at the phosphomycin recommendations and where we were coming from. Yeah. I will say to CLSI only had to keep putting some things in context only has a breakpoint recommendation for E. coli and um, Efecalis and only recommends testing those two organisms. So that's again, in tandem with, with other references that we would use in practice. Um, and then last but not least, as we move on, what we want our listeners to take away from ESBLs is what Dr. Tama said in that 
other Enterobacterialis can absolutely harbor ESBLs. And so while we don't get into this with Enterobacter and whatnot, we will talk later um, in our second episode when we talk about EMC producers uh, about how elevated MICs might reflect ESBLs and other organisms. And then there are ESBLs that are not CTXM. And so we have a long way to go in terms of detection. And, and Aaron, if, I don't know if we're if we have enough time, but just because the most popular question we got was about the cefamycins, if I could just briefly touch upon yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Go for um, it. So in the updated version, we did add a question about cefamycins for ESBLs. And, Can you and remind they, us what the cefamycins are? Absolutely. So I feel like people are like, what is that? <laughs> no, I uh, thank you. I forget that. Uh, yes. So in the in the U.S., the ones that we have are cefoxitin, cefotitin, and both of these are intravenous antibiotics. Um, and and the the short the, the the quick summary is that we actually don't suggest the use of cefamycins for the treatment of ESBL infections until more clinical outcomes data, specifically for cefoxitin, cefotitin, are available and optimal dosing has been defined. But just to kind of um, explain why we, we went this route, the cefamycins are cephalosporins. They're generally, they're second generation cephalosporins. They're generally able to retain in vitro activity against the ESBL enzymes, which is really nice. And, you know, sometimes as a quick way to cheat, if you saw an E. coli that was resistant to ceftriaxone, susceptible to cefoxetin versus resistant to cefoxetin, it's one easy way to kind of say this might be an ESBL producer versus an MC producer versus having a plasmid mediated MC. Um, but basically, you know, this, so the, again, the cefamycins in the US are cefoxetin, cefotitin, which are both IV. And keep in mind the guidance is intended for the U, a US audience. So of course we were most interested in data on these two, two um, drugs specifically. Um, but just looking at cefamycins in general, there's been eight observational are uh, re retrospective observational studies that have compared clinical outcomes of patients with ESBL infections. So generally either UTIs or bloodstream infections from urinary sources treated with either cefamycins versus carbapenems. So for all eight, cefamycins versus carbapenems. And six of the eight found no difference in outcomes, but two demonstrated poorer outcomes with the cefamycins. And one of these two was the, the largest study published to date, and it included 380 patients infected with E. coli or CLEB bloodstream infections. And the 30-day mortality was about 30% in the cefamycin arm versus about 13% in the carbapenem arm. So that difference definitely gave us some pause. And, you know, importantly, many of the cefamycins investigated in the studies were not available in the U.S. And, you know, we realized that these studies most of them were small, had diverse sources of infection, there was notable selection bias, all sorts of differences in dosing frequency administration of cefamycins. And in total, there was only about 30 patients that received either received cefoxetin, none received cefotitan in the published studies. So we ultimately came to the conclusion that we really do need more clinical data before we recommend their use for ESBL infections, including UTIs. Um, we definitely need optimal dosing and frequency administration, especially in light of the two observational studies that suggested poorer outcomes with their use. And lastly, you know, I, I think what we ultimately felt that as cefamycin, cefoxetin are both IV, have short half-lives, had to be dosed frequently, frequently, there didn't seem to be this great feasibility advantage to using these um, over some of the existing options. So for now, we'll, we sort of table them, but hopefully people will do studies and 
maybe there will be a great oral cephalomycin option that would be a really nice oral option for something like cystitis to, to keep people out of the hospital or pilo. Yeah. Thank you for that review. I think it's important, you know, in with the advent of CRE in the early, what, 2010, 2012, and all the new drugs in that space against these more resistant pathogens, we kind of push ESBLs to the side a lot, but they're the most common things we see in practice. They're increasing, especially in the community. So I love that we started with them and spent a lot of time on them because it's what I think applies to most of our audience and what you're going to see most commonly. Everyone will treat a patient with an ESBL, whereas some of us may never see a really complex MDR steno crab combination, depending on your patient population. So ESBL is very important. And speaking of orals, um, tebupenem is a new oral carbapenem that is moving right along the pipeline. It seems, um, I think there was an announcement about that today that I saw. So stay tuned breakpoints listeners. We may have more on that as the season evolves. Okay. Let's go to CRE where carbapenems don't work. We have no oral CRE agent, I think. Well, Bactrim. Let's talk about Bactrim. <laughs> I love Bactrim. I'm so excited to talk about Bactrim dosing. Poor Sam, we've gotten 45 so many minutes comments about Bactrim dosing. Do Sam, do you want to break it down because of well, all the Bactrim well, dosing questions? Well, let's uh, let's go through the recommend. As excited as I, sorry, I totally jumped the gun because I love Bactrim. What an underappreciated antibiotic, honestly. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about the CRE recs. Uh, on again, the framework for them—they're beautifully outlined, I think. So you can go, maybe Pranita, you can walk us through that framework. And again, this issue of testing—how do I even know if it's carbapenemase producing versus non-carbapenemase producing? Does that matter? And then we can have Sam talk about Bactrim. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Aaron, I think that the CRE section, it's, it's a little more straightforward than ESBL. Obviously, carbapenem resistance itself is, but we, there's similar testing issues that make it a little problematic if you're not at an institution that does carbapenemase testing or that can tell you the specific carbapenemase gene present. So, you know, we in this updated version as panelists felt very strongly that all clinical micro labs in the U.S., should develop approaches to detect carbapenemase production in CRE clinical isolates, including identifying the specific carbapenemase presence. And the CLSI has some really nice documents which summarize which approaches are, are, are most recommended. And we understand, unfortunately, that at the present time, most US clinical labs do not perform um, testing to see if a carbapenemase is being produced. I mean, we also understand that, of course, there's often delays in susceptibility testing to the novel beta-lactam, so the newest beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors in sifiderocal, which might mean that sometimes clinicians have to sort of guess which drugs to use, guess if this isolate has a, a carb, is producing a carbapenemase or not. One thing that has been really helpful that was published since the first version of this document was data from the CDC published in Antimicrobial Agents in Chemotherapy which addresses some of the current limitations with testing. There's a really nice editorial to that written by, um, by Karen Bush about um, some of these issues with testing. But just to summarize the data, the CDC characterized about 42,000 CRE isolates collected from all over the US between 2017-19, so pretty contemporary data. They found that only 10% of CRE isolates that contain a carbapenemase gene remain susceptible to miropenem. So basically it means that if the isolate is susceptible to miropenem, there's a very strong likelihood a carbapenemase is not being produced. So in light of these data, what we suggest is that if you had an isolate 
resistant as an enterobacterial is resistant to erdapenem, so an MIC of two or higher using CLSI breakpoints, but susceptible to miropenem, so MICs of one or less, and you're a hospital that doesn't have access to carbapenemase testing, that we believe extended infusion miropenem, so something like two grams every eight hours over three hours, is a reasonable treatment option. Um, we do say that ceftazabi is could be an alternative in these settings, but of course we preserve, prefer to reserve ceftazabi for the treatment of infections caused by CRE resistant to all carbapenems to preserve its activity. And we recommend against the use of miropenem vaberbactam or imipenem relibactam to treat these erna-resistant miro-susceptible isolates when you don't know if there's a carbapenemase gene, simply because we don't think there's any additive value of the beta-lactamase inhibitor. So for example, the vaberbactam to the miropenem if it's already susceptible to miropenem. But if the isolate is resistant to miropenem, so resistant to erdapenem and miropenem, or if a carbapenemase has been identified, then we definitely recommend moving to one of the newer agents, specifically the newer beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, such as ceftazidimabibactam, miropenem vaberbactam, or imipenem relibactam. Um, and just to sort of add a few more details to this, in the CDC data I mentioned, they found that in all the CRE isolates they evaluated, so these are both clinical and surveillance isolates, that 35% were carbapenemase producing. So most of the CRE in the US still appear not to be carbapenemase producing. But of these 35% isolates, KPCs were identified in about 86%, NDMs in a little less than 10%, and the OXA48 like in a little less than 5%, and almost very, very rare to encounter VIMS or IMPS in the enterobacterialis. And just briefly for ceftazabi, we know it has activity. You know, in, in a perfect world, it should have activity against KPC producers and OXA48-like producers. For miropenem, vaberbactam, and imipenem relibactam, they are active against KPC producers, but not isolates um, producing OXA48-like carbapenemase, mo most likely not, so we'll say not. And unfortunately, neither ceftazabi, mirovabor, or imipenem relibactam used alone have activity against the metallo-beta-lactamase producers. And in the US, the one we really worry about in the enterobacterialis are the New Delhi metallo-beta-lactamases. So if you put all the data together, since the majority of CRE clinical isolates either don't produce carbapenemases, or if they do, they're producing KPCs, um, as a panel, we believe that any of these three, three new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, again, ceftazabi, mirovabor, or imireli, could be preferred treatment options for CRE infections when you don't know what the resistance mechanism is. And I will say that if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a lab that can tell you more information, we do break it down a little more. So for KPC producers, ceftazabi, miropenem, vapor, or imireli, um, we don't unfortunately have head-to-head -head data, uh, clinical trial data between these. One observational study did suggest similar outcomes between ceftazabi, mirovabor, but perhaps an increased likelihood of resistance for subsequent infections if you're using ceftazidime abibactam. So as a panel in this version of the guidance, which is a little different from before, we slightly favor miropenem vaberbactam. Again, ceftazabi, mirovabor, imireli are all good options for this sort of resistant to miro, resistant to ERT. You don't know if there's a carbapenemase. We think all three of these are, if you know it's a KPC producer, um, we think all three of these are fine. 
Miraveber slightly preferred because the likelihood of the emergence of resistance is less, followed by Seftaz Avi, and then followed by Imirelli, simply because we have just less clinical data available for Imipenem-Relibactam. For NDM producers, we suggest either the combination of Seftaz Avi and Astrianem, and maybe I'll let Sam talk a little bit about some of the dosing and interactions and things to think about with those two drugs, are Sifidrocol. And finally, for the OXA48-like producers, we suggest Ceftazavi is preferred um, with Sifidrocol as an alternative. And I'll just throw in one last thing that, you know, if you, certainly if you're lucky enough to have a CRE, you know, growing in, in the urine, so a cystitis, for example, that happens to be um, susceptible to Aaron's favorite drug, Bactrim, or, or even a quinolone, then by all means, we would suggest go for it and, and use those non-carbapenem uh, or non-beta-lactobetalactamase inhibitor options. I think the best thing, well, no, the CRE section is beautiful, but one of the coolest things is your recommendations for single dose aminoglycosides as well for cystitis to consider. Uh, I think that's such an underappreciated treatment option, especially globally. I know this is a U.S. centric document, but uh, aminoglycosides are great UTI drugs. And I think that one and done option, we've used it a lot ever since this went into the guidelines um, and it's been really helpful. So I personally love the single dose AG nod. So thanks. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, no, that was great. Sam, do you want to comment a little bit more on the Ceftaz AV Astrinium combo? Particularly, let's comment on dosing just a bit. There's some recent data and modeling out of Tom Lodiza's group that looks at dosing and looks at compatibility of these and timing of administration because we're, you know, aiming for this basically Astrinium AV Bactam combination for Metallos. So talk to us a little bit about what one should do if I have to give both of those drugs to my patient. Yeah. So uh, the first thing to comment on when it comes to dosing uh, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors is that it's a complete mess. Uh, nobody knows what the correct PKPD parameter is. There are several different competing points of view on there. And seemingly each company that comes out with a new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor comes out with a brand new pharmacodynamic target. Um, so without, without getting too in-depth on there is, is a very difficult uh, thing to reconcile, even under the best of circumstances. Now, as Trinidad maybe back to him is interesting because it is in phase three trials as a, as a combo drug. So we do sort of just repurpose Ceftaz AV with as Trinidad to, to sort of create that combination that is being studied. The reason why we can't use the dose in the trial is that the dose that's being used in the trial is like absolutely bonkers uh, from a dosing perspective. Uh, and it involves lots of different continuous infusions that are completely unachievable with the currently available dosing product. So we did have to come up with a different recommendation. Now, it would be really nice to just be able to say for sure whether we could just give the dose of the drug that's labeled uh, and, and leave it at that. But what you run into problems with is if you have different dose adjustments for different re uh, levels of renal impairment, um, or uh, for example, if you want to give 2 grams Q6 of Estrianam with 2.5 grams Q8 of Ceftaz uh, Avi, you really don't know whether that's going to be synchronous with the inhibitor and you're actually maximizing your effect. So, as uh, Aaron mentioned, there is uh, there are some data from uh, Tom Lodice's lab uh, where he looked at it in a hollow fiber infection model and showed that a, a dose of eight grams per day of estrianam was probably a little bit superior to six grams per day, um, which is helpful to know. And for a while, that actually did inform my dosing uh, recommendations, um, which which you know as, as it should. I, I really appreciate all the work that Tom does in this space. Subsequently, however. 
uh, it, it made things a little bit more difficult to do that dosing. And subsequently, um, a group of folks from Italy, along with Amit Pai, who along with having a fantastic mustache is one of the smartest people I've ever spoken with. So Amit Pai uh, published this with an Italian group and they did a PKPD study of patients uh, with metalloproducing um, infected with metal-producing organisms, and really showed that doses of maxing out at uh, two grams Q8 worth of estrianam, or, or even sometimes uh, one gram Q8 if the MIC was four or lower, was sufficient. And so that made me really happy because that makes it easy enough to give estrianam alongside ceftazabi at the same dose. Fortunately, we do have Y-site data, again, published by Nick O'Donnell and Tom Lodis, um, showing that as expected, that estrianam and ceftazabi are Y-site compatible. So that's where our dosing recommendation came in with two grams Q8 of, of, of estrianam with 2.5 Q8 of the ceftaz Abbey. Um, and really it's, it's easy enough. You can even build this as a panel in a lot of EMRs. You just build and panel them together, infuse them both over two hours, say that they're Y-site compatible, and you solve a lot of line issues uh, using that dosing recommendation. Um, so that's, that's my preferred approach and that's how we came there. Nothing um, makes a pharmacist's heart happier than a good Y-site com compatibility study. Love so if you're like, if you're like hanging out in a lab and you're like Omicron shut down right now, that's what you should work on at home. That drug, you pour them together, you look at them and you're like, this is yeah. compatible. And you get a publication. It's to great. all of our PhDs out there whose research labs are on pause because of this COVID surge, please do some Y-site compatibility studies for us. <laughs> Just pick, pick um, random drugs. You want to know cisplatin and vaporbactam? Here you go. Here's cisplatin. And Sam, only, only you talk about cisplatin. Actually, I've, you've lost me, but okay. So thank you for that. So, That's actually a really terrible idea. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't break points and drive guys. So, um, okay. So combination therapy. So combination of ceftazavia estrianam for metallobetalactamases is one of the only places where we would use combination therapy for CRE, which I like that you guys mentioned in the guidance, the CRE drugs are awesome. We have a lot of them now. CRE, arguably, I hate to even say this has become relatively straightforward because we have effective agents, which is really amazing. This used to be such a cluster. And now it's like, Oh, these drugs are great. You can give one of them. Patients die a lot less. Those are the kind of data we're here for. So no real role of combination therapy for CRE. And then the last thing is, before we talk about Bactrim dosing, is that you guys completely say do not use polymyxins for CRE, which had to have felt so good to put on paper and put an official guidance recommendation. But with all of these other awesome drugs and all the nuances outlined and even certain situations, you have other options now. There's really hardly any, if any, I can't think of a situation right now, maybe a really weird metallo that like had mutated penicillin binding proteins and was sifiterocol and ceftazav estrianam resistant. Um, is there any role for polymyxins for, for CRE? So that was exciting to see. And, and it's so funny because we got a lot of, um, you know, uh, not, uh, not excited emails from different companies about the placement of their drug. But I think the one area where everyone was excited was you know, not recommending polymixes. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure. I'm Both sure. industry and the academic community. Everyone rejoices. Angels get their wings. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, so to round out the CRE then section, uh, Sam, can you talk to us a little bit about the non-beta-lactam agents? So the new BLBLIs and Cifidericol are wonderful, but what about Bactrim, doxycycline, tigacycline, aravacycline? And fluoroquinolones, dare I say it, they do have a role in therapy sometimes. Uh, so what about those agents? Can I use those for carbapenem resistant enterobacterialis? Yeah. So I, I will say that, you know, probably the area that I think we had a lot of discussion on, it was a, it was a difficult recommendation to make. 
um, and, and come down on was really the role of the novel tetracycline derivatives, tigacycline, aravacycline, um, and, and figuring out where they fit. So the listeners are probably familiar, tigacycline has this not quite black box warning, but it basically has a little warning in the package insert that says, please don't use this, your patients might die more frequently. Um, so that's a pretty uh, difficult thing to overcome. Uh, and especially when you have plenty of uh, drugs that are available that work just fine, you know, it's hard to say that we should just use this thing that has this little warning here. And, you know, that without getting into the depth of that data, that really stems from a slight a signal for increased mortality, basically across the board in all the tigacycline RCTs, but particularly pronounced in patients with uh, VAP. So the... Um, as a panel, we, in the absence of having good data for how aravacycline might fit in there, it has some of the same PKPD issues, not quite as pronounced as tigacycline, but has a very extensive volume of distribution and has a really weird protein binding profile. We didn't have great data that it worked for CRE. So as a panel, we sort of bucketed it in together with tigacycline, and we came up with the, the suggestion to not use these for most cases. Now, in the second iteration of the guidance, we realized that you know, there are definitely situations that you want to have these drugs that are useful. Um, and if you can avoid giving somebody Ceftaz AV, for example, forever, um, for say something like a sacral decubitus ulcer that's infected, then you absolutely want to do that. And we want to try to find opportunities to use these tetracycline derivatives where they're safe to do so and might be effective. And so really in the newest iteration of the guidance, we, we struggled a long time with coming up with the wording for this. And it was really ultimately what it boiled down to was these infections where we felt that you just, intra-abdominal infections, for example, where we felt that you just needed sort of mop-up therapy where it's source controlled. You're not necessarily even sure that you need antibiotics. You probably do, uh, but you might just need a couple of days of something to just sort of clean up after, say, an abscess was drained or something like that. We felt that was an appropriate situation that you could consider using one of these uh, tetracycline derivatives. The other situation where we felt that it was probably appropriate to consider using these tetracycline derivatives, and this is where we really struggled with language about these, is these infections that are never going to be medically cured uh, that you have to just treat for a really prolonged period of time. So these are these, intra, for example, intra-abdominal catastrophes, chronic osteomyelitis where definitive source control is not possible. Um, the types of infections that you can't really do a great study for, uh, but every ID person knows exists and has probably like six or seven of them on their service right now, um, where you have polymicrobial mixed anaerobic, some gram positive stuff in there. That's where we felt that these might be reasonable drugs to use, um, particularly in a sort of long-term maintenance phase. And so that's where these, the, the, in the latest edition, we'll have these recommendations or, or suggestions that you can consider using these drugs. Yeah. We don't think it's a necessarily, we don't suggest them using over anything else. And certainly if it's not inappropriate to use one of the new beta-lactamase inhibitor combos or, or cefiterocol, but we think these are reasonable places to consider using either tigacycline or aravacycline. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Pranita for our audience has a, uh, she's like simultaneously frowning and smiling right now. When you talked about the seven patients on sir, I was like, that was impressive. Like she's laughing, but frowning. I don't know how you do that. We all have these patients for sure. And I would agree with that role. I, we also joke like nothing Nothing uh, treats a necrotizing pancreatitis like a drug that causes pancreatitis, right? So if you want to get something in the, <laughs> give them Tyga. That was great, Sam. Do you want to round out then this discussion with how if I have a non-carbapenemase producing enterobacter wound infection and I want to go home on oral bactrim? Ready, go. 
you, you have the blessings of, I think everybody in the ID community to do so. Sam um, literally just raised his hands, like the praise hands emoji. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I, the, I, Bactrim is a great drug. And, and honestly, in these situations, quinolones are great drugs too. Most enterobacters are susceptible to quinolones. And I might be like uh, sort of um, exiled from the ID pharmacist community by suggesting that quinolones can do anything. But I'll I, hang I, out I with you are, still. <laughs> I think these are great situations. But not in Michigan. Um, yeah, exactly. And Bactrim is great too. The thing to watch, pay attention to there carefully is drug interactions. Often these patients will have um, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, spironolactone, something like that, or, or just poor kidneys to start with. So I really, you know, it's helpful to find out and, and track their potassium really well um, and make sure that uh, they're not going to have problems with it. And there's great data from the Canadian pharmacovigilance uh, studies that these drug interactions are meaningful and do lead to long-term harm if you're not careful with them. So certainly Bactrim is a great option, or sorry, Trimsulfa, if we're trying to be non-branded here, um, or the quinolones, I think if they're active, they're they're great drugs in this situation. Oh my, I've used Bactrim a lot. I apologize if you're right. Co Co-trimoxazole or Septra is, are the other appropriate names. We're, we're, not, we're not showing bias. Right. So thanks for finishing the discussion on CRE. Let's move into the last organism of the first guidance document, which will close out our first episode. Uh, Listeners, join us next week. We're going to have a second part two here where we go through the three organisms in the second guidance document. But to close out today, we're going to talk about pseudomonas, particularly difficult to treat pseudomonas. So who wants to kick us off with the Rex for pseudo and any discussions related to this pathogen? You know, one, one thing that I, I think I'll just throw in quickly um, before we talk about difficult to treat pseudomonas is that um, we were getting a lot of questions, and I think in our own clinical experience, we're all, we've all been exposed to these pseudomonas isolates causing infection that are uh, resistant to carbapenem, but still susceptible to a drug, like maybe the susceptible dose-dependent range to cefepime or even peptazo, and what, what do we do with those? In the first version of the guidance, we like, you know, just ignored that and focused on the difficult to treat pseudomonas, but we realized that it's probably worth saying something, even though unfortunately we don't have a lot of great data. Those phenotypes, like uh, going through the literature actually, and David Nicola has a very nice paper on this, are found in about 20 to 60% of carbapenem resistant pseudomonas. So they retain activity or susceptibility to at least one of the traditional beta lactams. And this is generally due to, to the lack of our limited OPRD, our outer membrane porins. Um, because these normally facilitate entry of, of carbapenems into bacteria. So unfortunately, comparative effectiveness studies to guide treatment decisions caused by pseudomonas resistant to carbapenems, but susceptible to one of the traditional beta-lactams are not available. We decided as a panel that if an isolate remains susceptible to a traditional non-carbapenem beta-lactam, so let's say cefepime, ideally you would repeat testing to confirm this. And if that's the case, we, we believe that you know, administering dose-optimized non-carbapenem therapy, so in this case, maybe high-dose extended infusion cefepime um, would be a reasonable option. But we certainly don't fault anybody um, if they decide that they're just more comfortable using one of the newer beta-lactamases, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors. So we put some wiggle room in there, Particularly if you have a patient with a moderate or to severe infection, there's really poor source control, then it might make sense, or it's not unreasonable to use one of the newer drugs. But sort of to just summarize that, I think if in fact one of the traditional beta lactams test susceptible, 
then we feel if you optimize the, the dosing, go for it. But of course, like any patient with any infection, you should obviously monitor the patient closely to ensure appropriate clinical improvement. And particularly with pseudomonas, as we all know, it has this impressive capacity to acquire um, new resistance mechanisms while exposed to antibiotic therapy. And Sam, I don't know if you have a, a preference. Some of the other new questions just off of the top of my head we added were about how frequent emergence of resistance of, of difficult to treat pseudomonases to the newer agents and the mechanisms involved. Um, we also added um, a question about um, nebulized antibiotics. Can you, do you remember, Sam, was there anything else major content added for pseudomonas? I think those are the two new ones. Okay. The pseudomonas recs are actually, again, dare I say it, a little straightforward in, in, in that we do have several new antibiotics, I say new in the last decade, almost at this point that are, you know, quite active against difficult to treat pseudomonas and are, are quite effective. Um, and so do you want to walk through, well, first, can we define what difficult to treat is? Cause I think Pranita, that was awesome. It was a really good nuance in that you can have pseudo is weird because carbapenem resistance doesn't mean resistance to what's a good word for first generation beta lactams or, you know, front, typical beta lactams we would use. Whereas in other pathogens, once you get carbapenem resistant, we assume all of those others are resistant, but pseudo is not like that. And so that's a very important distinction. Um, but what is difficult to treat? And then you can kind of quickly walk through the, the available drugs and how really they're all pretty equal if they're susceptible. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think this is one an area that I think is a huge gap in terms of our clinical uh, understanding of pseudomonas. Uh, Pranita pointed out there's uh, actually the most common beta-lactam resistant phenotype is carbapenem resistant only, often uh, sometimes shared with uh, fluoroquinolone resistance due to the presence of the same efflux pump. Um, so unfortunately, what we don't have is, uh, is great comparative literature on which drug to use, whether that be, say, cefepime, ceftaz, piptazo, um, in the absence of carbapenem. Uh, susceptibility. I think everybody's pretty comfortable saying, oh, if it's ceftaz resistant, go ahead and use carbapenem, but the vice versa isn't, isn't true. And I think it's sort of hard boiled in people's heads that carbapenems are the more active drug for gram negatives. And that's just not true for pseudomonas, but we don't have the clinical literature to say that we can use cefepime or ceftaz or piptazo. Um, some of this certainly, I think you, you absolutely can, but some of it also involves the relative adequacy of the breakpoints within pseudomonas. So for example, in the Enterobacter alleys, susceptible dose dependent, which is an entirely different issue, uh, is uh, Enterobacter alleys with an MIC of four or eight. Those are just considered susceptible for pseudomonas. There's a PKPD rationale that especially at eight, that that's probably not an adequate definition. Um, and so really the question is, where can you stop using cefepime? Is it susceptible is susceptible the same across the board or is an, an isolate with an MSC of two very different than one of eight? And I don't think those are resolved questions. Uh, but personally, when I see a carbapenem resistant only pseudomonas, uh, I feel completely comfortable using say cefepime or piptazo or, or ceftaz uh, if that's the case. Um, so that's, you know, a, a sort of outside maybe the, the initial version of the guidance document, uh, guidance questions that we have. And, and then the difficult to treat resistance, um, just to Erin, um, was um, it's a great question because it's a sort of a new phrase for all of us with the first guidance. And I, I'll be honest, I kind of found it a little awkward, but you know, it seems to be it's, 
cut does your on. head because when you hear DTR, do you think to find the relationship? Because that's what yeah. I of course you do. I, that's I definitely don't think it's difficult to treat resistance. always need to do that. Of course you do. Yeah. But um, but basically it's kind of what what to, to sort of tag along to what Sam was saying. It's basically resist uh, a pseudomonas or really any gram-negative organism that's resistant to all the traditional beta-lactam. So in this case, piptase, oseptas, cefepime, estrinem, as well as the fluoroquinolone, so cipro and levofloxacin. So you're pretty much left only with aminoglycosides, polymyxins, even though technically there's no susceptibility criteria for those, and, and these newer beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors and cefidorocol. And then as Sam mentioned, you know, we, there are not head-to-head -head trials comparing ceftazavi versus ceftoltazo versus imirelli for difficult to treat pseudomonas. So if they test susceptible, great, <laughs> you know, use what you have, you know, absence of drug shortages and, and so forth. But one of the reasons we actually thought it was helpful to add a section about resistance is that, you know, very briefly, we've learned a lot about resistance to pseudomonal, pseudomonas resistance to these new drugs, particularly ceftoltazo, ceftazavi, and there's a lot of great work that came out of Pittsburgh looking at this, where we know that there could be amino acid substitutions, insertions, deletions in the pseudomonas-derived cephalosporinases. So those are commonly called the pseudomonal AMPCs. And we know when these, uh, these occur, these substitutions occur, that they can basically cause resistance to ceftoltazo and ceftazavi. And unfortunately, um, we're seeing more and more data, and there was some data both from Hopkins as well as Pittsburgh sort of showing the same thing where um, in our experience in a cohort of 28 patients who had difficult to treat pseudomonas treated with ceftoltazo, the drug seemed to be very effective. However, unfortunately, about half of patients had subsequent pseudomonas isolates resistant to ceftoltazo and pretty high level resistance and cross resistance between ceftoltazo, ceftazavi, and sadly, even potentially cefidorocol may exist. So one of the reasons we felt this section was necessary to add is that upfront, you know, test, it's, it's actually probably great to test all the drugs because unlike the CRE, it's not as predictable which of these new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors or cefidrocol might be active against the DTR pseudomonas. So definitely test them all. Whatever test susceptible, dose optimize it, use it. We tend to prefer the beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors over cefidrocol just because there's some more experience and there's some questions we've had with some of the cefidrocol data in, in the um, large RCT. But one of the caveats we say is that if a, the same patient comes back with a new pseudomonas infection or with signs and symptoms of sepsis, and you know they recently received a drug such as ceftoltase or ceftazavi, if that isolate test is susceptible to a drug like imirelli, it might be a good idea to consider that until you have new susceptibility data simply because unfortunately there, there is a reasonable chance that those um, two agents may not be active anymore. I love that. And I think that's such important guidance, especially what we see in Pittsburgh. And I appreciate that we see it more than, than most may, but if we have a, a DTR isolate and we're starting a novel agent or a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor or cefidorocol, we're testing everything want to track that because one, a lot of our patients come back, they're organ transplant patients, or they're patients with immunodeficiencies that we are frequent flyers. We see them, they get admitted a lot. It's really important to trend these isolates and look at those patterns. And I think it's really important to gather your own institutional data 
the pseudo in Pittsburgh is not the same as it is in Baltimore or in Michigan. And we saw this nationally with the ceftolazine tasal bactam withdrawal from the market. That was a really solid empiric choice when you didn't have susceptibility testing, you could feel pretty good that ceftaltazo might be active in a patient with a carbapenem resistant pseudomonas or something like that. And then it went away and no one knew where to position Imirel versus ceftazavi versus cefiterocol because no one had any local epi or any substantial amount of isolates tested to these other drugs. And so you had really no clue when we were shooting in the dark, which was really difficult, I think. And so, so gathering your own local epidemiology is is really important. The thing that I actually find really interesting about this, just as a sort of uh, side note, is the fact that Ryan has not yet broken or published on breaking Imirel or Cefiterocol in Pseudomonas, whereas he's usually on top of destroying every drug that becomes available. Uh, and I haven't seen anything from him. So I don't know yeah. whether that's a function of COVID or what, but... I think he just published the Imirel stuff. Oh, did he break it already? And I missed it? Okay. I yeah, that I'm pretty, would, would stand. I'm, I'm pretty sure we've been a little busy with the COVID. <laughs> uh, if you two are sitting on a four page document of all the things you'd love to do that aren't COVID related, you're not alone, fellow listeners. You're not alone. <laughs> Rounding out the pseudo section. So there is a role of polymyxins here. We must admit if it's resistant to all the new beta lactams and aminoglycosides, then polymyxin may play a role um, for pan resistant pseudomonas. And Anything else you guys want to mention for pseudo? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, probably the one thing we added in in is a uh, recommendation against using adjunctive nebulized antibiotics for pseudomonas pneumonia. And, uh, you know, I think this is probably one of these things that'll pop up like almost like gospel um, about dual treatment for pseudomonas is that you can get all sorts of data and people will just find different rationales for using it. It'll never necessarily stop. But at this point, there are three decent RCTs that show, at least for common VAT, that you get no benefit from adding on uh, adjunctive antibiotics, whether that be amicase and nebulized colistin or uh, amicase and phosphamycin. They all were pretty much stone cold negative. So this doesn't address the tracheitis, people with bronchiectasis and, and long-term colonization. But for standard pseudomonas VAP, there doesn't seem to be any strong rationale. And the randomized trial suggests there's no benefit of adding uh, aerosolized antibiotics. So that'll be a new recommendation that we have. As and well. we do realize that that conflicts with the international polymyxin guidelines, the IDSA VAP guidelines, um, and it is actually in agreement with the European guidelines on this. So there's definitely different professional groups that have sort of had a different take on the data out there. But we, we as Sam very nicely said, as a panel reviewing the data, just felt that the benefits um, weren't quite there in the literature. We do like being somewhat contrarian. It was actively discussed <laughs> that we disagreed with well, these We forged ahead anyways. Sam's oh, pleasure at being a, a contrarian aside. I will say the poly guidelines and the VAP guidelines were published before the inhale trial. And the inhale trial is about as good as you can get in trying to evaluate if inhaled antibiotics work and it found absolutely no benefit. So yeah. to be fair, if those authors revisited, they'd include that data, I am sure. No, and, and we very strategically had Jason Pogue review the, the drafts of these guidance so that he can't uh, <laughs> go out there uh, being unhappy about that because uh, we can blame him. I will say, so there is recommendations for inhaled antibiotics also against in the acinetobacter section, which we are going to talk about in episode two. Uh, so the second guidance document goes through AMPC producing organisms, 
carbapenem resistant acinetobacter and steno. Uh, so come back next week for all of that content. For now, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers have been Dr. Pernita Tama and Dr. Sam Aitken. This episode was produced by Jillian Hayes and Rachel Britt. It was edited and peer-reviewed by Kelly Hannon, Julie Justo, and Travis Jones. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafon. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.